Welcome to the sixth in our series of Urban Transport Next events uh, with a live online audience on the topics that will help determine the future of urban transport. So whether you're spending your lunchtime with us, listening live, or whether you're listening to the podcast later or watching the playback on YouTube, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jonathan Bray, Director of the Urban Transport Group, the organisation that's hosting these events. For those of you who don't know us, we bring together the public sector transport authorities for the largest urban areas, so Transport for London, Transport for Greater Manchester, Transport for West Midlands and all the other major metro areas, serving over 20 million people. And our wider associate network also includes Translink and Transport for Wales. As well as being a body that thinks ahead about what next for urban transport, our members can implement that thinking on the ground and can learn collectively, and we do learn from these events. So I'm really pleased that uh, you've signed up to take part in this event, and I'm really looking forward to this one, because I don't think enough curiosity is shown in the rest of the UK about what's been happening on public transport in Northern Ireland, because there is some great stuff going on. And who better to tell us about it than the man in charge of Translink? It's CEO since 2015, Chris Conway, who we'll learn more about shortly. And who better to interview Chris than Wendy Austin, one of Northern Ireland's best-known journalists and broadcasters. In a career spanning more than 45 years, she's worked on local and regional newspapers, commercial radio and for the BBC, most recently as presenter of BBC Radio Ulster's Inside Business programme, uh, and for 15 years as one of the lead presenters on Good Morning Ulster. And you can also be part of this conversation in three ways. Firstly, by putting questions, keep them short and sharp via the Zoom questions box. And you can also vote for the question you most want to be put. And we'll be picking these up in the as the conversation goes in the final section in particular. You can also use the comments channel on the Zoom call and, of course, on Twitter using the hashtag uh, UTGNext. That's the hashtag UTGNext. And with that, I will hand over to Wendy. Jonathan, thanks very much indeed. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to join you today uh, and Chris as well, uh, and all of those of you who have joined us as well to find out more about TransLink and how public transport here in Northern Ireland is operating. Um, knowing you, Chris, I know that you're absolutely dying to get going here to tell us all about um, the future plans that you have for TransLink and so on. But I think it's really useful to put this in a kind of context right at the very start because public transport in Northern Ireland is unique, I think, in these islands. Um, and I think it would be really useful to just find out a little bit, first of all, about the way that public transport is provided here uh, and the role um, that TransLink plays in it as well. So could you explain, first of, us for, first of all for us, how it actually works? Okay, Wendy, thank you. Um, well, uh, Translink is a public corporation, um, so our main shareholder is the government uh, through the Department for Infrastructure. Um, but we have a, a degree of autonomy to, to run the service uh, as commercially uh, as we can. Um, we have a board of directors uh, and we have all key stakeholders that work with us as well uh, to make sure we deliver, deliver the service. We run an integrated railway, so we have the railway undertaking responsibility and also all of the railway infrastructure. So that's done on an integrated basis. Um, and in terms of bus, we run you know over ninety percent of the public transport network in terms of bus and coach network, both the urban networks like Belfast Metro and and the Foyle Metro in Derry Londonderry, and also all of the interurban services and the rural services as well. And then we work with the education authority to deliver the school services and the majority of the school services too. So it's very much an integrated operation, um, publicly owned, but we also do. We're also, I suppose, I'm not sure what the technical term for this is, but we're, we're like an organizing authority in that we do all of the timetable, the scheduling, the ticketing. We own and manage all of the stations and halts and all of, the, all of that infrastructure as well right across the network. Um, so we do that on behalf of the Department for Infrastructure. Um, so, you know, we're a small region, so I suppose we get the economies of scale of doing it that way. It's interesting hearing you describe it like that, because I'm, I'm sure there are people listening who are involved with other transport groups in, in the UK who hear parts of that and think, gosh, I wish, I wish our organisation was like that. And there'll be others who'll be saying, well, there must be pluses and minuses. So what are those pluses and minuses? Well, I think the positives are that it, it makes it 
a little bit easier because there are, there are always challenges in any organization model that you have uh, that you're set up, uh, but it makes it a little bit easier to, to, to get things done. There's fewer decision makers, fewer uh, different interfaces that we have to, to manage through to get things done. So that, that is a benefit, I would say. Um, um, I, you know, I think, look, if we're honest, the, the, the cons are that you know, we need to reach outside Northern Ireland to to um, find uh, reference examples, to do benchmarking, to you know, to look at what the competition is doing, and and you know, we do that by being part of industries like Urban Transport Group, part of industry groups like this, and and uh, and other ones as well, CPT and other organisations like that. And um, so, I suppose that becomes just a bit of a challenge for us that we do have to reach you know, so much further and to get good comparators and good benchmarks. So you have this organisation where the, the government, as, as you say, the, the Department for Infrastructure is, is the shareholder, um, very much a, a, a public body. Um, and you came from very much a private background. What was it that attracted you to TransLink to, to take on uh, the, the public transport system in Northern Ireland, which has, let's face it, we all know here, it's it's had its ups and downs, and it wasn't necessarily in the middle of one of those ups whenever you you came in 2015. Yeah, um, well, I I have been very lucky in my career. I, I've worked with mostly multinational corporations um, on a global basis. Uh, I've I've been able to travel the world and and see things from lots of different perspectives, uh, but also worked with some really great leaders, uh, mostly U.S. companies, uh, and. And, you know, that that has given me a lot of experience and, and, you know, really great development for me. And I suppose I've always, it was always in my mind that I wanted to do something more locally. I wanted to use that experience in my local area in some way. And I'd been thinking about that for a number of years. Um, and then the opportunity came up with uh, with TransLink, uh, and I, you know, I knew I'd been in the steel industry, so I knew TransLink from a, a, a as a customer in terms of the the steel they, they buy for for the railway network, um, and you know, I'd been in the telecom sector, and that's all about connecting people, and it was very much you know thinking about you know public transport and making those connections, uh, and and both the commercial and operations experience that I have sort of seemed to fit with what TransLink was looking for, so um, so that's why I applied. And when I joined, I met a really great team of people, you know, really passionate about what they're doing and and, and really, you know, I, I felt maybe not recognized as much for what they actually do. And I suppose what I've really tried to do is try to, uh, um, uh, you know, get the best out of that team because they really are a really great team, really passionate team. Uh, and, and it's been a real pleasure for me to, to work with them. Well, it obviously worked well because um, pre-pandemic, Northern Ireland was seeing record numbers uh, on the buses and on the trains. Um, uh, you'd got to the point where that, that great um, ambition of having Porsches and Jaguars in the park and ride car parks was being yeah. fulfilled. Um, and you know, you had to be there early to, to get, get the bus in, into Belfast and helped, I suppose, by the fact that the roads are clogged uh, and the park and ride buses swish straight past the traffic jams uh, on on the uh, on the hard shoulder or in the bus lane. So uh, it was the only one of the four nations in the UK where bus use was growing. Uh, was the traffic the reason for that, or do you think that the whole get on board program that you were running had really kind of seized people's imaginations and and made them think a bit a bit greener? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mixture of things. I mean, certainly in um, pre the pandemic in 2019, we saw the highest number of passenger numbers on public transport in Northern Ireland for for 20 years, um, and and you know that had grown steadily in the five years uh, before that, um, and that was really great to see. And that was on both our rail network, um, our metro network, and also on a lot of the interurban services as well. And and I think. You know, there's two aspects. I have this chart, which you always show, which shows partnership. You know, public transport, you can't deliver it on your own. It's all about working with all your partners and your key stakeholders. You know, we're you know very lucky to have a very supportive uh, department with the Department for Infrastructure and, and supportive politicians as well uh, in that on the committee, for example. Um but also the local authorities, also uh, and groups like accessibility groups and other key stakeholders who really wanted to see higher quality, better public transport. And you know what we've seen is when you invest in public transport, there is a latent demand there. People do actually want to use it, but the, the, their perception maybe is that public transport is poor. And and you know so one is we have to address that perception by uh, you know by some of our campaigns and some of our marketing and encouraging people to get back out and trial public transport people who've maybe not used it since they went to school um 
And then we've got to actually deliver. You know, we've got to actually deliver high quality public transport. And we've invested, along with support from the department, um, we've invested in products like Glider, like our Irby service, like our Goal Line service. And uh, we're invested in new ticketing. So we're putting the investment into it to, to address some of those quality issues. But as well as that, I do think that congestion in Belfast um, has been you know, it's starting to become a problem. And we have this saying where we say, you know, um, you're not in traffic, you are traffic, you know, and therefore, if you want to address the traffic issue, you actually need to make a different choice in terms of your transport. Uh, and uh, I think that was starting, people are starting to realise that, that we had to do something. Um, and that's a, that's a constant for us. You know, we're going to have to constantly invest um, more in public transport going forward. I remember when I was doing Good Morning Ulster, we used to get the texts and tweets in in the morning and one of them was somebody saying, you know, I'm sitting in the traffic jam on the motorway and the park and ride bus has just gone past me and it's empty. What is the point of this bus? And somebody else texted back and said, yeah, but it did go past you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the point. But um, you, you mentioned um, uh, some of the, the new developments, uh, Chris, that have taken place in recent years and they have been really remarkable Remarkable. And I think for, for those of us who live in Northern Ireland and particularly maybe around the, uh, the, the, the urban areas, um, it's been fantastic to see the, the new vehicles, the, uh, the new concepts. Glider, for instance, now the Glider bus rapid transit system, uh, much admired by those who know about it. Uh, but for those who aren't familiar with it, tell us a bit about it. So, so Glider is our bus rapid transit system. Uh, it's a project which we delivered in collaboration with the Department of Infrastructure. Um, it was on the design for quite a time, and then, uh, you know, we around 2018 we 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 um, delivered the the, the product. Um, and it, it's a whole it's it's a whole solution really. So it's not just about bringing in um, uh, modern vehicles. Uh, it's also about looking at the bus lanes. It's also about looking at ticketing. Uh, and what we come up with was really a, a tram-like system. Um, it's, it's a bus rapid transit system. People will be familiar with that term. Um, it's high-quality buses, but designed around a, a tram principle. Um, so they're articulated vehicles. Um, it's off-board ticketing. So, um, you know, we've developed a new ticketing system. So, again, it speeds up boarding and lighting times. Um, each vehicle carries about 100 people. It's a seven-minute frequency. Um, but as well as that, a key part of it was the infrastructure. You know, all of the roads that these travel on were resurfaced. Um, um, the bus lanes were made wider and the bus lanes operate from 7 a.m. in the morning to 7 p.m. in the evening. Um, and all of the infrastructure, all of the public realm along the route was improved, improved lighting, improved footpaths. Um, so it delivered a whole solution. It was back, you know, to that point in where is that people could see this is what high quality public transport looks like. And, you know, the, the actual reception was huge. I mean, we, the passenger numbers have gone up uh, on that route, on that corridor around 30%. Uh, I mean, we're taking an additional 45,000 uh, um, passengers, passengers on public transport a week when we introduced Glider. Um, so much so that we started with um, uh, um, around 28 vehicles. We're now up to 32 vehicles uh, on the route. So we've had to purchase additional vehicles to cope with the capacity. Um, and we're planning phase two of Glider now. So phase one runs from um, East to west, um, and phase two now. You know we're looking at north to south, and one of the key aspects that we didn't really consider, although we always talk about this, public transport has a social, economic, and environmental benefit. You know the actual benefit, and people who know Belfast, east and west, very different community backgrounds. You know we now have people in the east saying, "Well, I get on the glider and go for a coffee in West Belfast," who would never have gone to West Belfast, and they start to meet you know people from from different community backgrounds, and and. You know, we now have a partnership between East and West, you know, arts groups to to actually uh, help communities use the glider to join up communities. And, and it really has had a social impact uh, from that perspective. It, it wasn't all plain sailing, mind you, with the glider, was it? Uh, th there was there was enormous black at the, at the time when those public realm works were taking place and the bus lanes were being yeah. widened and it was all over the news and. Uh, for those of you who know him, Mark Simpson was on every night talking to somebody else who was complaining about it. Um, and has that all died down now or, or do you have to develop some sort of a strategy now to deal with that all happening again when you're putting in the north to south routes? 
Um, yeah, we certainly went through the pain buyer when they, I would say, you know, you know, uh, look, a lot of stakeholders need to be engaged when you're putting in an extensive bus priority network, as we did. A lot of businesses uh, along the route were very concerned about the impact on their business if we had to take away, you know, uh, on-street car parking. And that was a big concern for people. Um, we had a lot of, you know, schools and different different groups that, that were concerned about the impact it would have on them. Um, plus, there's a big car lobby, a big taxi lobby, you know, who all were lobbying politicians um, uh, and we had to deal with all of that and, and work our way through it um, systematically and we had to compromise on some things. I mean, there's some areas where we didn't really want to have loading times during the bus lanes, but we've had to agree to that to try and try and facilitate businesses um, and work with people. So, and as, as you know, the construction works themselves then were very disruptive uh, during, during that phase. Largely, we're over that, you know, because it's such a good product. You know, people got over that very quickly, and there was maybe a bit of a tail for a few months, but we're largely over that. But people do forget, and I think when we go to do phase two, I, I think we'll resurrect some of those same issues again, um, and uh, and and have to deal with them. And you do have to have a very robust stakeholder engagement plan. You know, a, a lot of PR. Uh, a lot of community engagement. I think for a year before Glider has been introduced, we were out. We had a trial. We had one vehicle on trial, and we were out visiting schools and visiting community groups and visiting businesses and letting them see the vehicle and, and talking to them about what how offboard ticketing would work. And we spent a lot of time on stakeholder engagement. Um, yeah. Well, good luck with that the next time. I'm sure yeah, it yeah. just as well. And, and for those of you who who haven't seen the Glider, that's it, just over Chris's shoulder there. Uh, yeah, where's it? Yeah. It's, uh, it's it's a, there, yeah. it is a very nice vehicle indeed. Um, you you have the Irby bus services as well now. Uh, bright blue buses which run kind of inter-urban services, I suppose. Yeah. In, in the name, what's the idea behind those, and and what is their impact been, Chris? Well, they they are sort of uh, so you know we've we've the urban services, then we've interurban, and then you have towns that are just on the outskirts courts of Belfast, um, which most people commute into Belfast from, um, and they were really being they were really their their public transport service was really a service which is going through their town from a, 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 you know a town further away, um, and they didn't really have their own service. Um, so we've created this service called an Irby service, uh, Irby, which is you know it, it's suppose linked to to urban, but but slightly different. That's why we called it Irby, um, and it connects those towns just on the outskirts of Belfast into in, into the city centre, um, and it also connects. We we merged the park and ride services into that as well, so it was all one brand. Um, so you have an option of, you know, if you're in a town to go to the closest park and ride or to, you know, to if you've an Irby, which, which passes close by to, to go to the Irby service. And again, we increased frequency. It helped reliability because reliability can sometimes suffer a bit if you're if you've got a longer, you know, a bus coming from somewhere further out to, to get to you. Um, so it improved that reliability for those uh, commuters uh, and the pre- uh, and as I said, the frequency improved as well. And plus, the park and rides really helped to give an enhanced service too. And we tried to. Um, Focus them around bus. We we haven't. We our next step was really to invest in in the bus lane infrastructure for the Irby routes as well. And we haven't got there yet. You know, sort of COVID has got in the way. But we've used the bus lanes to the best ability, and um, that we currently have to 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 offer those services. Um, and you know, in the first year, we they only launched really a year before COVID, and uh, we saw ten percent growth on those routes. And uh, once we did that, and again, it's another example of of you know. When you invest in high quality public transport, people actually use it. And, you know, all of those buses have Wi-Fi and, you know, charging, you know, USB charging points and e-leather seats and, you know, all all, all what you want to see on a, on a quality uh, bus service. Um, so and that's, there's still more to come on Irby, but but we got COVID sort of got in the way of that. So, uh, um, but it, it certainly has proved very popular. Well, we'll come to COVID and, and the pandemic in just a moment. But before we do that, I've realised we haven't really talked about the trains very much. And um, mm-hmm. Northern Ireland's rail network uh, has also been seeing really strong growth. And uh, we've lots of nice new trains. We can see one of them behind you there. I think looks like it's heading for Derry. Yeah. Um, and Derry, London, Derry. Um, so tell us more uh, about uh Northern Ireland Railways and the, the growth there and, and how you got to the point where um, the services were increased to such a degree and, and you had all those nice new train sets as well. 
Well, the the um, Northern Ireland Railways has been a great success story for for a decade or so. Um, uh, the decision was taken, you know, back in early two thousands to invest in the railway network um, and New Fleet, where it was purchased, uh, and and that was the beginning of growth coming back onto the railway network. I mean, people have a real f- fascination with the railway and and. And I think in lots of regions, the railway is, is very popular. And um, plus, of course, it gives a very, a very direct service to where you want to go to, um, and you don't have any of the complications of the road network. So that investment has started, and, and certainly we, we've seen significant growth. Um, probably, you know, 60 percent growth in, in in the last six or seven years. Um, and you know, and I think with continued investment, that will continue to happen. And um, we've now we're on to New Trains Three project now. So we've got two two phases of fleet procurement and another phase of fleet procurement, which we're doing right now. And we should see some of those trains starting to come into service at the end of this year. Um, and that's a real, you know, and they're you know again every time. We buy a new fleet. We're looking for lower emissions all the time, so that's that's you know we're starting to improve emissions and the performance of the fleet. We've also started to look at the infrastructure. Um, there's some elements of the infrastructure which are single track, uh, for example, from Belfast to Derry, London Derry, uh, and other areas where we just need in, to invest in the in the asset from a maintenance perspective. And um, so we're, we've nearly doubled in the last two years. We've doubled the investment that we're putting into the railway infrastructure. We've now got passing loops to Derry, London Derry. And we've got an early service on there, and we're looking at increasing that further. Um, and we've done a number of investments which has improved journey times on, on the railway infrastructure by putting in maintenance into the infrastructure and allowing speeds to, to increase. Um, and we're continuing, you know, that's going to continue for us. And um, of course, the enterprise service, which is the Belfast to Dublin service, which now of the, uh, uh, you know, has a, has a, uh, you know, is going from a non-EU country to an EU country now. Uh, it's something that we, we we want to significantly invest in. And we're working with Irish Rail on a new service for the Belfast and Dublin service as well. Um, and, and of course, there are requests coming in all the time for extensions to the network. We have quite a small railway network. It was purred back, you know, you know, at the same time as England around the beaching. We had the, the Benson report, which did the same thing and cut large parts of our network. Uh, and there's a lot of demand to increase those again. And, and certainly there's there's been an all-island sort of railway review now being started by the ministers in the north of Ireland and the south of Ireland to look at um, what could be restored to that railway network. And that's a big, you know, that's, that's an exciting time for us to look at what the opportunities could be to restore parts of the network again. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's a really exciting time on, on all our elements of public transport. And I think the, the big opportunity, I think, in rail now as well for us is is zero zero emissions and looking to electrify a rail network as well uh, and that's the next project we're, we're looking at too we'll come to that uh, later on but just, just to go back to I mean, that whole business of restoring parts of the network i know that it has been uh, quite a big topic and one of the discussions that's been taking place o- over recent months do you think that's a real possibility i mean i know there's been a push for for some years but it's been from time to time when different people have a particular mm. beef really i mean is there a chance that there might be some parts of, of the rail network that would be restored? Well, I think you know one of the challenges with railways are when you know for passengers they're they're an absolute great uh, um, transport product and um, but they are expensive to um, design to construct and then to maintain. Um, and I think that's the real challenge that you you really need the passenger density to to, to make that work. And and particularly when we look at electrification as well, you know, anything we want to do going forward would have to consider electrification. Um, but I, I think there are parts of the uh, our network which you know uh, you know um, I think could be considered for for enhancement. I think better connectivity to to the airports, for example, uh, could be considered. Um, and there are already parts of the network that could you know that we could invest in to do that. Uh, and you know the, we talked about the investment into the northwest into Derry, London Derry. There might be some options there too, and, and of course there is some demand to extend the network beyond uh, and put it down. Um, so I, I think they all need to be looked at, and feasibility studies should be done, and and we should look at the the, the options. Um, and in the absence of doing that, I think we need to recognise then that bus is is the only other option and we've got to invest in the bus infrastructure and the, the coaches and the buses that, that do that i think rural services sometimes get um 
uh, you know, are, are, are the last to get invested in. And we actually need to say, well, if it's not going to be a real solution, we have to then invest in the bus solution and um, to make sure that rural services, rural um, and communities are also served, uh, well served by public transport. Um, well, Jonathan mentioned at the beginning, of course, that, um, that we're keen to get your, your questions for all of you who are, are, are listening to, to Chris there. And there are quite a few of them coming in. I just want to pick up on a couple of them, uh, partly to remind you that your questions are very welcome, uh, but partly also because um, they're relevant. Uh, and Andrew was the first with a question uh, and he wondered, is Northern Ireland Railway, Northern Ireland Railway still vertically integrated in the very traditional railway style, or is there at least technically, nominally, legally, theoretically, an EU-style vertical separation between infrastructure and operations within the overall entity? That sounds a bit like, what is it, the, the great... Great British Rail. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, look, you know, we we um, uh, we, we're 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 vertically integrated in that. You know, we've one management team which runs both the railway infrastructure and the um, the railway undertaking. There's two separate managers actually run those. Uh, we do meet. You know, we have some um, under the EU regulations. We have to do some technical separation and, and some economic separation, and we do that and we comply with the EU standards in that way. Um, but we're still, you know, we still have under the Department for Infrastructure, uh, we we are still able to to run it as you know one management team. And um, so we do comply with the EU regulations, but, but but it's one management team that runs it in an integrated way, and and that allows us to. It allows us just to to speed up decision making and 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 be practical, but it is a small railway, so it, you know it's the economies of scale of doing it that way as well. Irish Rail is run very similarly uh, as well in in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, Jake has has contacted us as well. Thanks for the question. He says, "Do users of Glider see it as and call it the bus, or something different?" They call it the glider. I mean, we 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 talked about the brand name and how we get the brand out there, and and one of the things that sort of slightly surprised me is that people took to the name glider very very quickly, uh, and everybody talks about getting on the glider. All the young people want to get on the glider, uh, and that's all it's called now. You know, it's, it's they don't call it the bus; they call it the glider. And um, so. Uh, Ian uh, has a question as well. This is a slightly different one, but he says, um, could you offer any insights on the extent to which, if at all, being a government owned operation enables a better discussion about how TransLink can help fulfil government policy aspirations for climate or urban regeneration, public realm improvement or public health or other social objectives? Yeah, it it, it does um, mean that um, we're able to have a closer conversation with the department and with other departments in government um, about you know the things we want to do uh, and how public transport can can support in terms of you know social economic environmental well-being um, you know the you know, local council here the Belfast City Council and other councils they all have our quality plans so they'll come to us and talk to us about well how can public transport benefit our, our you know uh, you know, how we can use public transport to benefit our quality plans you know the Department for Health you know, comes to us and talks to us about, you know, for example, during COVID, what can we offer them in terms of access to COVID centres and all those types of things? And, and we can facilitate that through our Department for Infrastructure as well. So it does, it, it's, you know, Northern Ireland is quite a small place. So it, it does enable those types of conversations. It doesn't get away from the fact that there's still a lot of stakeholders out there who, and, you know, even if we agree within, you know, the various departments of government that this is the right thing to do, there's still a lot of stakeholders out there who, may have different views and we still have to get out and engage with them and consult with them and work with them the same as you would have to do in, in any other and planning you know if we have to go into planning for certain projects as well and that can be a very arduous process and, and that's the same same in lots of regions so it, it certainly helps the conversation um, a lot of the hard work in terms of stakeholder engagement still needs to be done. Great. Um, let's look at the pandemic now, Chris. Uh, you, you're in this terrific situation. You have record numbers traveling on the buses and the trains. And then all of a sudden, the advice is to stay at home and not to use public transport. So how, how has TransLink dealt with that? And how have you, well, obviously, you do have to keep some kind of public transport system going. Um, how did you protect your staff and the passengers who were using the services during the pandemic? Yeah, so like I think, like all public transport operators, we we you know it, it was a a, a big um, challenge for us. Um, obviously, the 
the COVID and uh, you know health issues took priority over everything else, and um, the messages around public transport were uh, you know were very stark. And um, but we had to sort of work with government to to deliver on those, and you know we we implemented a lot of measures very quickly. Um, you know we we got the screens up in, in buses to, to protect bus drivers, and we got hand sanitizers out for cleaning. We introduced face coverings quite early, actually before even government were were suggesting it. Um, and and you know we we got a lot of messaging out. We had to do a lot of timetable changes, and that was a big challenge in terms of communicating those to to a lot of employers or a lot of employees, sorry, but also to a lot of uh, a lot of our customers. Um, and and you know we've continued just to reinforce those messages, and of course cleaning our vehicles. I and mean, we've always wanted it was one of my bugbears. I always wanted to invest more heavily in in, in cleaning our vehicles, keeping them clean. Now cleaning vehicles is just like you know it's uh, there's no there's no discussion on that now. Uh, and we've invested heavily now in, in cleaning and sanitising and making sure that um, surfaces are cleaned on a regular basis throughout the day as well. And um, so that's become a priority for us. And for, from your staff's point of view, I and mean, I know we all read stories about how uh, badly affected bus drivers, particularly in, in London and in the big cities were, uh, did you have, have problems with that as well? Not not to the same extent. Um, uh, you know, we um, in Northern Ireland sort of lagged the rest of the UK a little bit. So we were able to take some of the lessons uh, in coming across from England, you know, uh, and and act quickly on those. So we got Perspex screens up for our drivers very quickly. We got, we got you know, gloves. We got um, took cash, you know, uh, uh, off our bus services quickly as well. Um, and we didn't have the same issues. Now, we did have a peak of... COVID-related illnesses, but but uh, you know no no fatalities from from that, uh, and we're very pleased that everyone has recovered from that. Uh, and that was around sort of May June, and then that came down to sort of normalised level, and we've been able to keep it at that level uh, um, for the rest of you know all during the pandemic. And, and I have to say that staff were very um, you know went above and beyond to make sure they delivered the service to to essential workers. You know we had. Um, conductors and bus drivers who separated, you know, because they had young children, and uh, they went and, and, and either, you know, lived in in temporary accommodation uh, to make sure that when they were working, they they weren't uh, at risk of bringing COVID home to their families. So a lot of people really went above and beyond to continue to deliver that essential service. Well, that's excellent to hear. I mean, what effect has the pandemic had then on Translink's patronage and on on its finances? Where do you find yourselves now? Obviously, uh, uh, 2020 was, you know, a very difficult year in financial terms. Our passenger numbers dropped, you know, same as everyone else, to about 10% of their normal level. Um, and our revenues did the same, pretty much. Um, and But look, we, you know, we had great support from government. And they recognised straight away that it was important to, to continue to deliver essential services. Uh, and um, whenever the covid emergency monies were coming from from Westminster into Stormont and they were making the decisions about what they had to do and they did prioritize making sure that public transport uh, um, uh, was supported during that time so you know we've been able to uh, um, use that support to to continue to run services at a, at a basic level and during 2020. Um, we're now, you know, just in throes of agreeing a budget for for twenty one twenty two, uh, and and you know, again, we haven't got that finalised yet. But you know, again, there will be some emergency COVID money there, which the government recognises will be needed to see us through twenty one twenty two, and we're just finalising those budgets. But we have, you know, we're. we're you know, we're starting to return to full timetables on our railway in the middle of June. Um, and we started to return to certainly full timetables on our metro network. And then our Ulster bus network, our interurban networks will, will return to full timetable probably by, by, you know, over the summer. Um, as we see schools returning after the summer. So, um, and capacity is, we're probably at about 50%. Demand is at about 50% of full capacity now. So that's, probably return more quickly than we expected um and if you know the vaccinations and all the things we hope to see continue uh, and we don't go back into lockdown you know uh, we can see sort of uh, um, a sort of phased recovery into public transport um during 21 22 and um, which will hopefully see us starting to return to um a full service or a full full capacity maybe you know in, in the summer of 2022 uh, or not that long after that and um, so you know 
people have returned much more quickly than than was anticipated a few months ago when I, I described it as a bit like when you're ill, you think you're never going to get better. But once you start getting better, you actually get better much more quickly. Uh, and I think that's sort of what we're seeing happening. So what lessons would you say uh, the pandemic had had taught you and had taught TransLink? And are, are there things, I mean, obviously there were some areas in which you were able to move very quickly and, and that was very much to the benefit of, of your staff and your customers. But are there any things that with hindsight you would have done differently? I, I think the, the key that we've all learned is to react quickly, you know, to, to the situation uh, and and listen to the advice, take it seriously and, and react as quickly as you can. Um, and, you know, we we did that as far as we could. But, you know, when you look back in hindsight, you say, well, could we have introduced masks, you know, more quickly, for example, and face coverings and, you know, other things that we could have done differently. Um, but I think the big thing for me is about communication. It's about communicate, communicate, communicate. Someone said to me, should be a chief executive, you know, top three priorities and it certainly was the case during COVID-19 and you know we were changing I think we did you know about um, about six or seven different timetable changes throughout the year because we had lockdown then we come out of lockdown then we back into lockdown and you know we had lots of different phases and communicating all that across Northern Ireland to lots of different different uh, customer groups was very difficult um, and something we had to step up our ability to do that social media is great that can do a lot but not everybody uses social media and we had to find lots of different ways to get out and communicate with people and um, same with our, our, our staff you know, we had a lot of work to do to communicate to staff. Just timetable change as well. I mean, you're 4,000 people to try and get to the right place at the right time every time you change a schedule. Uh, and we, we had to make sure we were able to communicate with staff. We had people in the back office who were working from home. So how were we looking after them? And what did we need to do in terms of their well-being, getting IT infrastructure out to them? Um, and we did, you know, we, we, we have an internal communications team and they were really stretched to the max. We put more resources into that team to make sure we, 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 we were able to communicate with people and during the you know some of the some of the in initiatives that we'd been thinking about we just speeded them up so we'd we'd been talking about an employee app so that all people could access all information about translate anywhere you were using an app on your phone uh, and we speeded that up and we have now an employee app out on on uh, for um that anyone can access just in the personal mobile phone if they want. Um, and more and more information is there now, schedules, times, you know, important information as well as just general information about TransLink and what we're doing. And like well over 50% of our workforce are now using the employee app and, and I think that'll just increase. And that's a great initiative. We always struggle with how do you access remote workers and, and communicate with them on a regular basis. So there's things like that which are great. And I, I would say our big lesson is now to keep that communication at that level. That, that's really what people expect now in terms of communication. And we're looking at for passengers, you know, some you know, digital timetables uh, out at, uh, out at um, um, some of our more remote stops, extending what we do in real time passenger information, just not out of urban areas, but extend it beyond urban areas as well, because we recognize that we've got to get better ways of communicating with people. It's fascinating, actually, isn't it? You know, when, you, when you look at the, the ways that different companies have have used the opportunities that have emerged during the, the last 15 months and you know either pivoted or changed to make something completely different or do things in a different way but one of the things that you hear from many of them is that it just kind of turbocharged changes that they were already thinking about uh, but they were able to kind of seize the moment I mean looking ahead now to that time and you're talking about Customers coming back, you know, fifty percent uh, usage again, perhaps. How do you how do you see TransLink seizing the opportunities that present themselves post pandemic um, to become the organisation that you would like it to be? Well, I, I, you know, I think one of the big lessons from COVID nineteen is that. There were a lot of warnings about uh, the risks of a pandemic, you know, uh, a decade before COVID-19 hit. And and a lot of them weren't really taken seriously. And you know, a lot of people weren't prepared for COVID-19 in the, in the way that we could have been. Um, and, and I think that's something that will be planned for going forward. I think every business's business continuity plan will have COVID-19 or pandemic on it now in terms of going forward. And I think the same is through, through for, for climate change. Uh, I think for too long, you know, the Paris Agreement, uh, um, since we just haven't done enough and COP26 is coming up now and I think everyone will recognise we haven't moved far enough in terms of climate change and I do think that transport is one of the sectors which has done the least 
and certainly in Northern Ireland, um, uh, you know, a lot of sectors like the energy sector have significantly reduced carbon emissions, but transport hasn't. Uh, and I think that's the big opportunity for public transport. You know, um, I do recognize that certainly, you know, everyone's now talking about the internal combustion engines being phased out and we're all going to go to electric cars, but that's not a complete solution. I mean, electric cars are not, car- there might be carbon zero at the tailpipe, but they're not carbon zero as a, as a product when you think about the manufacturing process and, and some of the environmental issues around uh, um, manufacturing batteries. So we've got to look to mass transport being part of the solution and we've got to look to a bit of a back to the future. You know, the way things used to be done before we had uh, predominance of, of cars and a lot of people will remember using public transport and and public transport having better priority through through our streets um and and you know I, I think that has to be part of the future and that's what we're starting to get ourselves ready for over the next 10 to 15 years you know we'll need to actually have a public transport network that is really fit for what people expect public transport to do going forward and that means a lot more investment it means decarbonization of our network um and it means you know um starting to think about how we connect communities and connect people in a, in a different way uh, and you know there's lots of technologies out there that have been talked about mobility as a service all these te- technologies now need to be explored and a bit like you said in covid we need to bring them all forward we've talked about them and maybe these are things for the future, but we now need to treat this like a crisis and actually start bringing some of these forward and really making them happen much sooner. So let's talk about hydrogen for a moment, because Transink uh, has now, uh, you're, you're heading for your zero emission vehicles. You have three hydrogen powered vehicles uh, in the Metro fleet. Uh, the first double deck hydrogen buses anywhere in Ireland. You have another hundred zero emission buses coming, a mix of battery and hydrogen powered vehicles. Um, Keith Buchanan has written in here to say, how are the hydrogen buses performing and your thoughts on the future? And I couldn't have put it better than him. So tell us. Yeah. So look, they're performing well is, is the first thing. I mean, that was that was a, a pilot project we did with, um, and we actually got funding from the Office for Low Emission Vehicles or the Office for Zero Emission Vehicles, I think they're called now. Um, and we've done that in partnership with Energia and with Wrightbus. And uh, Energia will be supplying the hydrogen and they'll be supplying it from an electrolyzer at one of their wind farms. So it'll be totally clean hydrogen, green hydrogen. Uh, and then Wrightbus are supplying uh, the vehicles. Um, and we've, you know, we're, we're at the minute, we've got them out in service now. We haven't designated any route. We're just putting them uh, around routes, let people see them, let, let us try them out on different, um, in different geographies to see how they perform, you know, in, in different environments and what, what the range is like. So they, they're performing well. Um, and like all new products, you always have some teething problems coming in, but but they're performing well. The drivers like them. They're a very smooth vehicle. They've got all the new technology on them as well. You know, instead of wing mirrors, we have cameras and all the technology for, for passengers and uh, comfort as well. So they're being very well received by, by passengers, well received by our drivers. Um, and the fueling station, we've been using a temporary fueling station, but the full the fixed fueling station has actually just been delivered last week. And we're starting to implement that now. Um then what we're doing going forward is we've ordered 100 zero emission vehicles from Wrightbus. Um, 20 of those will be further hydrogen vehicles and then 80 battery electric because we believe that both technologies will work together for, for quite some time. Um, and uh, the team were out seeing the first battery electric vehicles from Wrightbus, double deck vehicle from Wrightbus uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and that looks very good. And, and we're starting to put the charging infrastructure into a number of our depots and putting in another hydrogen fueling station in, in a second depot as well. Um, so that's advancing again quite quickly. Much more quickly than we anticipated, but we now recognise we need to get on with this. And I, I really see us ordering about a hundred zero emission vehicles a year now. We've a fleet of about fourteen hundred vehicles, and we really need to now, you know, be ready um, uh, for going zero emission. We'd like to have certainly urban areas like Belfast and Derry, London, Derry zero emission by twenty thirty, uh, and then zero emission across the network by twenty forty, and that's sort of the goal we've set ourselves. And then we're also looking at a real network as well in terms of the different options around electrification. Probably the, the most sensible option is electrification is a well-trusted technology for, for for trains, but hydrogen may play a part in that as well, and that's something we've got to we've got to look at too. Um, but certainly we, we feel that uh, the race to zero, I think it's called, and, and we feel like we're in a race now that we've got to try and move these technologies forward very quickly. But one of the other key things in that too is the point I mentioned about glider. 
bus priority is critically important for a bus network. And that's something we're working with the department on as well to look at how we expand and extend quality bus corridors uh, and because and park and ride as well. Another key feature is park and ride. So all of the infrastructure that sits around uh, this is important as well. Um, I'm going to fire a few questions at you, uh, Chris, off the, the Q&A page here, because there are quite a lot of them coming in now. Um, some of them are very specific, but some of them are, are more general. Stephen would like to know, is a common ticketing system envisaged across all modes of travel? Yes, it is. Um, we've been working on for the last couple of years an account-based ticketing system, um, and uh, we will actually be starting. The very early parts of that are replacing our railway handheld. Sounds getting very technical there, but that'll be the beginning. We're doing that in June. We will then be doing our first sort of contactless uh, deployment on Metro um, after the summer, hopefully September to October. And then we will be rolling out contactless early part of next year on our Ulsterbus network. Uh, and then we will transition all of that to account-based ticketing. By the end of 2022, early 23, um, we will have account-based ticketing, which will be right across our network. And that will be tap on, tap off. So that's where you don't need to worry about your fur or what you're doing. It, it, the system works it out for you in the background. Very simpler. It's, um, very um, similar to Transport for London. Um, and it will be, you know, for us, it'll be a large um, integrated account-based ticketing deployment, probably one of, one of the biggest in the UK uh, outside London. Um, and, and that's that's a, a big project for us as well. Yeah, that will change things considerably. And there are quite a few questions about trains, about the rail network, Chris. Um, I'm going to lump a few of them together because they're around the same kind of topics. And Helen wants to know what's the possibility of the Northern Ireland Rail Network being extended to Enniskillen. She says the mid-southwest region has no access beyond ported down to rail opportunities and thus providing significant challenges for people and freight. What part of Northern Ireland's public transport transformation will address the regional imbalances that exist? Cahill uh, is asking about the plans and timescale for a faster train link between Londonderry and Belfast. He says the rail services and development appear to be very east-centric. Um, there was another one as well here, and I will have found it um, from Steve Bradley, who was, uh, well, he was making some of the same points. It's kind of disappeared. Oh, no, here we are. Um, he says, uh, smacking your wrist here, he says, Translink has been poor at genuinely integrating transport modes. No feeder buses from Banbridge to Scarver Rail Station or Limavady to Bellarina. The train from Derry gets into Belfast five minutes after the train to Dublin has left. When can we expect to see Translink pursue genuine integration opportunities that seem common sense to ordinary folk? I know there are a few different things going on there, but sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, so on a very general uh, um, response to that is, I think uh, our minister and the minister in the Republic of Ireland have agreed to do an all-island uh, um, rail review. Uh, and, you know, we will certainly, you know, be feeding into that with our own strategy around our network. Uh, and I think that will look at, you know the feasibility of uh, you know where where it, it makes most sense to invest in the railway network. Uh, you know we like running railways, so we like to run a railway everywhere. But the government have to pay the bill in terms of uh, the the costs uh, and and the ongoing maintenance. So so that's what that review will do. Um, and that will take some time. I think we've got to recognise these things take time. But but that will do some time. And that will look at the wider context. So I think that's what's what's happening there in terms of the, the northwest specifically. You know, we've implemented what we call phase two enhancements in the northwest, and we're now looking at the feasibility of a phase three, uh, which would look at you know additional passing loops and, and increasing the journey time between the northwest and and Belfast. So that project is sort of underway at the minute. In terms of the point about wider integration. Um, I think anybody who works in transport can, can you know, will get a list every day of the things they could do to improve integration. It's usually done very much from a from a, a, a very local perspective and, and what we can do. And we have to try and make that work in an overall network context. Um, and, and, you know, that's our challenge in terms of scheduling the railway, scheduling the buses and making sure that everything works as a network. Because, yes, one particular area might say, well, I could get that there. But then that has a knock-on effect to the rest of the network. So we have to try and balance that across the overall network. So I would argue with Steve that we have a very integrated approach to things. But we know we can do better. And we're we're always open to, to listen to ideas uh, that can make that better. And certainly if Steve wants same so, so note of the things he he thinks we could do better. Uh, I'll certainly respond to it. I mean, certainly, well, from what he says, there's not much point in the train arriving in Belfast five minutes after the one to Dublin has left, is there? 
Well, again, that's a complex networking issue, uh, uh, Wendy, which I, I'm not going to respond to well that exactly. You could pick, there's other aspects of the day where it, 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 it works well, but the enterprise service, you know, when you, when you, schedule that train it has to be scheduled recognizing the irish network as well and what we can get into dublin at what time um and therefore when we invent what we're trying to do at the minute with irish rail is to bring forward a proposal and um, for fleet investment in the irish rail and translink network that would give us an hourly uh, enterprise service and then that would interface directly in with the early service into the northwest so that's that's the way we're solving that plus of course we have a big investment project in the Belfast Transport Hub as well, uh, and the Belfast Transport Hub will increase capacity uh, in our rail network overall. Uh, and that project, we're currently in construction on that at the minute with a, a plan to have that open in 2024, 2025. Um, and that will allow us a lot more flexibility about how to to um how to adjust these uh, these timetables? See, we've got you know there's legacy issues which we're investing in to do it, and they're not quick fixes, unfortunately. No, indeed. Um, Roy Bags, there's a question, and I'm assuming it's the Roy Bags that that we that we all know, uh, Ulster Unionist MLA. With the development of local hydrogen hubs, to what extent will the cost of hydrogen come down for Translink, and so increase competitiveness of hydrogen fuel buses? And when's this expected to be on the ground? Well, that's a, that's a complex question. Um, we're, you know, we're trying to be, you know, because there, there is a, a hydrogen supply uh, sort of business out there, but we need to create more demand for hydrogen. And Translink are sort of trying to lead that by, you know, um, doing what we're doing with uh, public transport and hydrogen buses. We're hoping that other elements of the private sector and freight and all that will follow us once we're able to, uh, um, 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 you know, show the benefits of hydrogen. At the minute, the hydrogen costs are higher than, than diesel costs and that's just a fact but as more people start to use it the prices will come down um, and that's you know in terms of when that will happen that you know we need to ask the supply side of of that as to, to when they think that will happen but certainly we're out doing a procurement at the minute for hydrogen supply for our next batch of vehicles or 20 vehicles uh, and you know it is it is one of the challenges the supply side have is making sure there's enough demand um, to actually justify them bringing in hydrogen for example into Northern Ireland and um, so at the minute we're really the only customer out there uh, and we were hoping that by doing what we're doing, um, more parts of the industry will start to look to hydrogen as well. And then that will help drive the cost down for everyone. Um, let's look a, a bit further afield for a moment. Uh, we have a few questions about, about um, connectivity with other parts of the world. Stephen says, could we connect port freight to rail moving away from reliance on roads? Uh, and would that create greater sustainability? Andrew uh, also says, are there any prospects for rail freight or is that gone for good? Um, and there was another question then, which was more about airports, which was, um, would you be able to give any insight into the issues around surface access to public transport to Northern Ireland airports and the challenges in improving this? Are there any live schemes to improve surface access? Now, you did mention that. And yeah, yeah. both of our, well, both of the uh, airports in the east have railway lines, which are kind of, as we might say in Northern Ireland, finance them, but don't actually go there. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. the other side of the road's not much use. Um, mm -hmm. the, the railway line in uh, Derry, Londonderry, uh, is close to Eglinton, but it doesn't go mm -hmm. there either. So um, maybe you could address all of those, Chris. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, on, on the freight, first of all, we are going to do a freight feasibility um, to see what the opportunities would be. Um, and, you know, um, freight was used on the Northern Ireland Railway Network in the past. It's been quite some time um, before we've taken any freight. And it does require sort of big hubs. I mean, a lot of it was the quarrying industry and a lot of industries which um, are, are, are not as major now in, in Northern Ireland where the freight industry um, um, was used. So we, we'd really need to engage with industry again to see what the opportunities would be for freight. But that's something we plan to do. And I think the... The All Island Rail Review is also going to look at freight as well, um, so that will be something that we can look at because you know there, there, you know, you could, you know, it feels like there's an opportunity for freight, but we have to dig into to really understand what the opportunities would be. Um, and we do have a connection to Larne, for example, in terms of Larne Harbour, and, and, and that's something we could could be utilised again. Um, in terms of airport connectivity, yes, we do want to improve airport connectivity. We are. Um, 
uh, inputting into the union connectivity review, which Peter Hendley is is looking at, uh, and we have raised the the issue of uh, or airport connectivity and rail connectivity to airports in in Northern Ireland, uh, and that's something that we might uh, uh, might come out of that review and uh, to help us to look at some feasibilities on that. Um, it, it's not it's not an easy solution, although the railways. Can run close to to um, the airports. There can be quite a bit of infrastructure to get them connected completely, uh, and then as well as that, it's the type of service. I mean, some people would say that light rail is better served into an airport because you can it can be managed much more frequently um, than than a sort of a heavy rail um, solution. But it's something that we we are raising now. It's something that we, we would like to look at. And Steve has come back uh, from the northwest uh, in capitals. He says the railway line at City of Derry Airport runs right alongside the runway there. Uh, so anyway, we'll yeah, take, yeah. take that on board, Steve. But you would have a long walk up the runway uh, to, to get to get to the actual uh, turbos building. But anyway, uh. um, let's just pick up on a, a few. There are a couple of very kind of local questions. But Wakeful says, you know, what's the current schedule for extended train testing on the four thousand trains? I know they were at Antrim and Carrick what about the Bangor line and he had asked a question earlier that I hadn't got to actually which was about the return of a full timetable and is it possible um, if uh, there's a shortage as he puts it of class 400s for refurbishing or extending to six car trains no, I mean, we'll be going to full timetable on June the 14th. Uh, so within two weeks, we'll be on the full timetable. Um, uh, we are testing, doing dynamic testing on the new trains, uh, the, the six cars. So we're effectively brought in new carriages to extend their existing carriages to, to six car sets. Um, and um, they're being out tested. I mean, it's not where they get tested is sort of nearly. Uh, it's most. It's it's more about where it's more practical to do that, um, and, and we'll do it on, on all routes eventually. Um, but at the minute, we're doing. We've only got the first train out testing. Um, but you know, uh, once that train sort of comes into service, then you know that freezes up the next train. They start getting refurbished. So it doesn't. We've got a schedule, so it doesn't impact our timetable. Um, and that work is ongoing. And we've also got refurbishment work ongoing on the on the three thousands as well. So all of the fleet is getting refurbished as well as uh, this new, these new trains we brought in. Um, okay, I'll give you a couple of quick ones here, Chris, if I could, because we've only got about four minutes left. Um, Andrew Muir, MLA, says public transport, key part of sustainable travel solutions. Are there any plans for increased secure cycle park facilities and opportunities to encourage greater uptake of the new facilities launched in recent times? Actually, there were a few questions about making it easier for people to cycle to, to use public transport. Yeah, yeah, and I think that is a key uh, uh, opportunity for us. I mean, always with public transport, the last mile is sometimes a big challenge. Uh, and I think we encourage more people to, obviously, park and rides help that, but we encourage more people to use active travel, like cycling, uh, as a benefit. So we have introduced a number of um, um, secure um, cycle storage facilities at a number of our halts on, on a pilot, working with Sustrans and the Department for Infrastructure. Uh, and we've also introduced them at key points on our glider route as well. Um, and we're currently Currently, just embarking on a, a, a project to look right across our network and look at what the ideal um, sort of we, you know we have cycle parking in terms of basic cycle parking at all of our stations, um, but looking at how we, what we would need to do to enhance that and what the uh, capacity would require at all our stations, and then look to bring forward an investment plan to do that. So everywhere where we can, we'll put in basic, and then the secure cycle storage has gone in in a number of areas more as a pilot than than anything else at this point. Um, we're almost out of time, but uh, Ian is doing my job splendidly for me here because he's, he's got the all-encompassing final question. He says, the climate emergency requires a massive shift to public transport. Looking to the future, what would be the key themes in your grand vision for making public transport in Northern Ireland fit and ready for the climate emergency? Yeah, can I do that in two minutes? I mean, I think the, the first thing is we've got to... Uh, um, recognize that we need modal shift we need more people back on public transport we need to see mass mass transit as a key solution to climate change not just you know thinking that it's all about electric cars so we've got to get that message across uh, and get people back on the mass transit and back on the public transport um, and that, you know that modal shift is really important and then for us in from a technology point of view it, it is decarbonizing the public transport network and investing in hydrogen and electric on both our bus and our rail network and making it easy for people using technology 
easy to make it easier for people to book on their bus, get their ticket, get on the service. Uh, I would like to see passenger numbers from where the from the best year that we had was 2019. I'd like to see us double that in the next five years, uh, and and I think that's where we need it. But but we do need government and politicians and key stakeholders to come with us on that journey and to invest in public transport. And keep the fares down. And keep the fares down as far as possible. But that's about investment as well. Um, Chris, uh, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much. And that was terrific that you did manage to get the Grand Vision into slightly less than two minutes there, actually. Right, good. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. uh, And I hope that everyone who's been listening has as well. And I'm going to hand back to Jonathan now to wrap this up for us. Jonathan Bray. Thanks to Chris and Wendy for what was a a great discussion and, and conversation. A few things I took away. A very different model in Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK, but one that's been getting results in changing attitudes and backing it up with investing in quality. Some big challenges ahead for public transport in Northern Ireland as everywhere. We've wounds not healed from rail cuts of the 60s, the urgent challenge of decarbonisation, the high levels of car dependency, but a really positive base to build. And for those who are listening in who aren't from Northern Ireland, who haven't been or haven't been recently, then it's a fabulous place to visit and plenty to see if you are a public transport geek like me in particular. So um, thanks um, again for everyone who's uh, taken part. I hope you'll be able to join us for Urban Transport Next 07, which will be on Thursday, 8th of July at 1pm, where our guest will be none other than Andy Byford, the Commissioner for Transport for London. Hope you can join us for that. In the meantime, thanks again to Chris and Wendy, to everyone who took part live, and for those listening into the podcast or watching the playback on YouTube. Thank you and goodbye.